You are now listening to the June 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. And begin our program with Christianese 101. My name is Grace, your host for the Christianese 101 program. Today, we are going to take a look at the word yoke and add it to our list of Christianese vocabulary. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? When I was younger, I remember seeing pictures of cows working in the fields. And those cows had a ring in their nose and a large wooden frame in their back. Since the word yoke appears about 50 verses in the Bible, I thought it would be helpful to find out what the term yoke is to better understand the Bible. A yoke is a wooden beam bound to the necks of pairs of livestock such as oxen or horses to harness the animal to pull a plow or a wagon. A rope is tightened at the end of the yoke and to the neck of an oxen or a horse. Then the rope is fastened to a plow or a wagon which secures the animal in place. Now, the animals are controlled by the people holding the ropes. Another definition for the word yoke is an arch device that was used around the neck of captives or slaves during the time of war. Figuratively and symbolically, the Bible uses the word yoke to represent oppression, submission, and sin, especially in the Old Testament. On the contrary, Taking off the yoke symbolizes salvation or liberation. Like this phrase, taking off the yoke of sin. So now that we understand what the word yoke means, let's look at the two verses I mentioned earlier. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says not to be unequally yoked with non-believers because once a yoke is put on, such as becoming married or partnering with someone to start a business, they are looking at the same direction, doing the same movement and work. Here is another example that a yoke can also be used in this way. In teaching a young calf how to work, the mother cow wears a yoke on her neck and the calf follows along its mom by putting its head inside the yoke. The mother is the only one that is pulling the yoke, which can be very tiring, but the calf just follows the mom without pulling any of the weight with the yoke. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this verse, Jesus is telling us to become yoked with him, and he will take our burden for us as we follow him and learn from him. 
After listening to this description, I can understand this word that Jesus and Paul uses even more. Today, we learn the meaning of the word yoke, a tool connecting two animals together to pull a plow, and when a mother cow carries the yoke on her neck by herself with her calf by her side. For this week, I want us to meditate on what it really means to take the yoke of Jesus. This ends our Christianese 101 word study for today. This has been Grace, the Christianese 101. Have a great day. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth without the shock value and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Have you ever listed the actual reasons that you blame someone else for your porn use? Have you ever considered that blaming yourself is a form of blame? Well, it's an, it's an interesting exercise. <laughs> it's, it's quite absurd, really. Because when we do this, we start to realize the links that we go through the hoops that we are willing to jump through to avoid responsibility. Man, it's so crazy, isn't it? How much harder that we're going to work to avoid the truth about ourselves rather than taking a step forward and then coming clean. You know, me blaming others also shows the reality of how bad that I'm still hurting, that I'm hurting people because of my own behavior. Today, we talk about repenting from the process of blame. Sin is seldom a a one-and-done type activity. Sin is not just committed by my behavior. It actually starts with my unhealthy thought life. It's my unhealthy attitude. It's my unhealthy desires. There's a whole process to this thing. There's a whole series of habits that we need to be aware of so that we can actually repent of each one. This podcast is part two of three, and it comes from a teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are inside this habit, this bondage, or this addiction, whatever you want to call it, to pornography. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, the choices that we have when it comes to blame. We've always got choices. I hope you hear that inside this series. We've got choices with everything. Number two, how blaming yourself is still a way to avoid responsibility. And number three, the difference between repenting from the process of sin and apologizing for the act. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is titled, Reasons for Blaming You. In the book of Revelation, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. We have no idea the glory and the purity and the beauty that the Lord has for us. We can't even think about it, right? The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians to where we can't even think, we can't even ask or think what he's getting ready to do. We can't even pray for that. I love that verse. I can't even think about what the Lord's getting ready to do. That's crazy. So under two, bullet point number two, I should have labeled that 2B, blaming yourself is an option for you to refuse responsibility. 
blaming yourself is an option for you to refuse responsibility. So that looks like this. Yeah, I did it again. And you just stay there. You don't do anything about it. It's this idea of, yeah, but you're not moving forward. So think about this. We blame the very people we say we love, right? These are the very people that mean the most to us. These are the very people that we are willing to give our lives for, and yet we continually blame them for our behavior. So reasons for ongoing blame on your worksheet. Number one, we haven't repented from the process of sin. We have only apologized for the act. So once again, we haven't come to grips with how deep in sin we are with this whole thing. We just keep going, we just keep saying here, I'm sorry for this. No, it starts, it starts right here. The whole lust thing, the desire, all the lying, right, that we do. So once again, I, I would say you haven't got real with God. You haven't got real with yourself. Um, confessing that you still love the pleasure of your sin more than God. Basically, you've got two gods. When we look at Scripture and we go, yeah, it kind of must have been kind of weird for these guys to be worshiping Baal, right? I would never bow down to a totem pole. That's just stupid. But we do it today. It literally, what God says is, this is another small g God in your life. And by the way, that really irritates me. Because my son would take care of something for you, and you're worshiping this small g God. And in Scripture, you keep seeing this, in the Old Testament, you see this concept of like, God will say, okay, well, have your small g God save you. By the way, I'm the one that went to to Egypt, and I'm the one that brought you guys out. I'm the one that did that. Remember the pillar that kind of led you? Remember the manna? Your shoes didn't wear out? I'm the one that went before you and fought all these. Remember that? I did cool stuff. Red Sea, the water coming out of the rock. God has a sense of humor. There's a point in this spiral, especially here at Blame, to where we truly believe that we're not doing anything wrong. I mean... At the end of the day, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's not that big of a deal. We kind of fall into that mindset, um, which is pretty scary, right? Because it doesn't really matter at that point if we're in that place, no matter what God says, no matter what friends and family say. Basically, we've defined our own set of morals, our own set of standards, and um and all you're doing is just apologizing to your family when you get caught over and over and over again. So I would say quit apologizing to your family. Quit lying to them and yourself. And reasons for ongoing blame number two is you're still living in your fantasy world. You've brought your sexual fantasy world into uh, reality yet. So what I mean by that is you're still living in your fantasy world, meaning that there'll, there'll never be any consequences. Because when we're in our sexual fantasies, right, we're the king. Everybody's there to serve me, to service me. It's all about dust and land. I am king. Anything goes. Everybody bows. It's perfect. It's nirvana. Exactly, right? So repenting of the, of the process that we're talking about 
there are the five, the five keys there. Number one, admitting that you love your sin. Confessing that I actually want to engage in the sinful behavior that comes along with it. Number two, realizing that I actually have to give myself permission to sin. I'm going to allow myself to do this. Number three, admitting that your life plan, or lack thereof, and what I mean by that is you've got no plan, you're just living day to day, is where you currently, has got you where you currently are. And so, some of you guys, if you find yourself not finding any victory in here, I would ask, how's the plan looking? Are you following the plan? Because most of us are arrogant enough to think, ah, I'll just tweak it. I'll just do this my way. You know, I won't follow the, the scriptures or I'll listen to a different podcast or I'll, I'll read a different scripture and, and all of that. And that's all great and wonderful. But the whole, what I would say is, then why are you even here? Because if this is the most painful part of our lives, then it's this issue that needs to be addressed. Um, but you guys keep doing what you want to do. I'm not going to fight you on it. All right, open your Bibles to Genesis 3. And we're going to look at two pieces of Scripture here fairly quickly. But just to give some idea of, of what blame looks like. Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now remember last week with trigger number 8 with with justification, all of those scriptures that you guys studied over the last week all talked about many words. Many words. We talked about the tongue, how it got us in trouble, right? Right? Well, a telltale sign that you're blaming someone else for your sin is if you can't answer a question with one word. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Is that a yes or no question? So your wife asked, did you look at porn? Did you do it again? Did you talk to that woman? So what's Adam do? Let's learn from him. Well, it was, it was the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit. And I ate it. So Adam's saying, look at this. If you wouldn't have given me the woman, this wouldn't have happened. This is your fault, God. Adam's blaming God for what just happened. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So Eve is saying, if you wouldn't have created the snake, this wouldn't have happened. This is your fault, God. It's amazing how much blame that we cast on God. You guys see that? These guys are not blaming themselves. They're ultimately, I mean, they kind of are, but they're ultimately blaming God. I mean, can you imagine that conversation when they're hiding in the trees? Taking some leaves and trying to cover their, themselves and their nakedness? I mean, I can't wait to watch that when I'm in heaven. I'm like, I, I want to hit play and see, okay, what, what did you guys talk about? How awkward was that? You guys think you have awkward conversations with your spouse. Think about that one. Now, can you imagine what was said as Adam and Eve were hiding from the Lord in Genesis 3? I mean, did they they make a plan and try to get each other's stories straight? (laughs) Did they, I mean, do you think they understood the gravity of their own sin? 
I mean, why did they choose to cover themselves with fig leaves? Oh my goodness, all the the many, many questions that I have when it comes to why we choose to do what we do. So how about you? Do you have a better understanding as to why you choose to shift blame and responsibility onto other people? Well, maybe you're the parent or the spouse of a loved one who's caught in this spiral. Do you have a better perspective of the manipulation that we put you through? This manipulation that we that you are enduring because we refuse to accept responsibility. And it's just easier for us to blame you. You're the closest person to us and you're going to get the majority of our blame. In Matthew 7, 3, Jesus says this, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Hey, 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 let, let me get that speck out of your eye, when there's this huge, giant log sticking out of your own eye? You hypocrite. You got to first take that log out of your own eye. Why? Because when the log's out of your eye, you begin to see clearly. And when you see clearly, that's when you can go back to your brother and address the speck in his own. Lastly, do you see how easy it is for us to blame God? You know, we think to ourselves, you know, he's the one in charge of pulling all these strings, right? He ultimately is in charge of everything. And if that's the case, this mess is his fault. It's not mine. But see, the reality, the reality in this is when we check ourselves, we find that we are where we are because we want to be here. We want to be inside dysfunction. It's a choice. And that, my friend, is a huge realization. When you realize that you're making willful, conscious decisions to blame other people, it's then and only then Can you choose to stop? You know, another big realization that I hope that we have sooner rather than later is how desperately we need to protect ourselves and and place internet filters on phones and computers and laptops. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly grace group. It's a weekly community group. It's for everybody. And you are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. We're located at Northern Hills Community Church in North Phoenix. We are in building A, room 301. You can also follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor and email me your questions. I would love to hear from you at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul writes this, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. See, it's the power that's in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not about talking about recovery. It's about living and experiencing and seeing and feeling the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Who Will You Put Your Faith In? Based on Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. You know, one of the things I love is to understand how the Bible fits together. Do you like to do that, to see how the whole Bible fits together, actually connects, is united as one book? If you're going through Isaiah, then let me just encourage you to try going ahead and reading through some of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles as well, because there you'll find a history of the kings that were leading whenever Isaiah was prophesying. And we'll see that this week, how important and encouraging that could be. Now, another way to do this, if you're like, man, I would really love to get some background on what's going on here. I know that Dan Diffie is teaching a Sunday school on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chronicles, and so that's a good opportunity for you to go and get some of this background. If you were to do that, I think that you would have a really good head start on understanding the story that we're jumping in today. See, we're right back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah. And as we're jumping into that series, what you'll find is we're all of a sudden going to be exposed to a king named Ahaz. Uh, So far, the first six chapters have been during the reign of Uzziah, a king who reigned for 52 peaceful years and largely did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, We know that Uzziah had a son, Jotham, who served for 16 years, and he was a mighty warrior who also did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then we have Ahaz. Here's what's fascinating. When you're looking at Isaiah, from Isaiah 6, where we talk about Uzziah dying, and Isaiah 7, where all of a sudden we are exposed to King Ahaz, King Jotham barely even gets a footnote. So I think that if you really want to understand the context of what's going on with King Ahaz, uh, reading a little bit in 2 Chronicles could be helpful. If you were to do that, here's what you would find. You would find a little bit about these kings and what's interesting and what I believe is a trajectory downhill that goes from Uzziah to his grandson Ahaz. Here's an important context to remember about Ahaz. You'll remember that God struck Uzziah with leprosy because he tried to go and act like a priest in the house of the Lord. And so because of that, he got leprosy and was expelled from the house of the Lord. What was he doing? He was trying to worship God unbiblically. He wasn't obeying the Word of God. Uh, Then we find that King uh, Jotham came along, and he did what was considered to be mighty acts in the name of the Lord. He was a great warrior, and he too, it said, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but there's a footnote in his description that says, he did not enter the house of the Lord. He neglected it. And not only that, we find that by the time we get to Ahaz, is even worse, we're told in 2 Chronicles 28-25, that Jotham's son Ahaz actually shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and built altars to foreign gods on every hill. Do you see the progression? Uh, You have a king that sought to worship God unbiblically, and then his son actually neglected the worship of God, and then finally you get to King Ahaz, who is bolting up the doors of the house of God, worshiping idols, and we're told that he was so into this worship of pagan idols that he offered up his own sons as sacrifices to those gods. I mean, just think about it. 
Grandpa tried to worship in a way that wasn't biblical. Dad avoided God's house, and one generation later, his son is bolting the door into the presence of Yahweh and looking to any and every God he can find. He is one of the most wicked kings that we read about, especially of Judah, even burning his own sons. Now you might ask, how did Ahaz get to that point spiritually? Well, 2 Chronicles 28.22 tells us, I believe, it gives us a picture into the psyche of Ahaz and what was going on with him spiritually. There it says, in the time of distress, Ahaz became yet more faithless to the Lord. Now, the harder things got, the more faithless he became. And that is the story of King Ahaz's life. But just think about it. It only took a generation to go from neglecting worship to burning children as child sacrifices. And not only that, did you catch the response of Ahaz to distress? Amidst the fires of significant troubles, his faith didn't shine, it faded. Don't miss that. The fear of man, it thrives as the fear of God dies. The bigger man becomes in your eyes, the smaller God will become. And when distress distilled the life of Ahaz, he proved absent of even a residue of faith in God. Well, this morning we're going to see that that downward spiral of his life and of the nation is epitomized in this climactic moment that we find in Isaiah 7. He is brought with a decision, a question, will you trust God or will you trust the nations? The fear of God leads to life and wars against the fear of man which leads to death. First, notice that Ahaz experiences the fear of man Verses 1 to 2. Now, our first two verses, they really are just setting the agenda for our text this morning. You'll notice that he mentions Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, also known as Ephraim. So you've got two kings, kings of Israel and Assyria. Not Assyria, but Syria with an S. Pressured Ahaz to join forces against the great army of Assyria that was on the move. And when Ahaz refused to make that suicide pact against the superpower of Assyria with whom there was no hope to defeat, Israel and Syria turned against Ahaz and attacked Judah to the point that they besieged the city of Jerusalem. And that's why Isaiah says, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. But not only that, King Ahaz represents the house of David. Important to note here, it reminds us of all of the promises that God made to King David, including that his seed would receive an eternal throne. That's a great promise. And yet here we find God also promised in Isaiah 6 that the holy seed, that is the stump, would survive. So he has these far-reaching promises that have come to David, his great-great-grandfather. And then you also have this near promise, the seed will survive. And yet here what we find is, is that it already looks like Ahaz will be wiped off the face of the planet along with the hope of the nations. Now don't miss this. Ahaz, he suffers with the fear of man. See, our fears, they can cause all kinds of different responses. So sometimes you might see that fear results in a, a fight-flight kind of mechanism. So some of the people that you fear are actually people who have control over you, and you might think of it as quite a nice thing, even though it's a thing that is very powerful over you in your life. 
Is that something that you struggle with this morning? And what about this? Do you think that you would even know if you did? Is it possible that you could struggle with the fear of man and not even know it? You know, let me just say as a pastor that we've had women and children that have come to us who have needed to be protected and, and we look to help them in any way that we can. We've helped uh, many in that way. So if that's you this morning, please let us know. We'd love to help you. Maybe that's you. You're struggling with fear of man. You need to get out of that danger. But maybe for many others of us, we're struggling not with that clear and present physical threat. We know that fear of man can also be much more subtle, don't we? It can work in ways that maybe we don't even perceive and the kind of control and authority that people might have over us. See, the fear of man the Bible speaks of is often more subtle than that apparent fear. Sometimes people who appear powerful are actually controlled by others. So there might be people that you think are completely in control, and yet if you knew their hearts, you would know that there's something else controlling them. We read about that in all kinds of places. In fact, I know people like this. I know a man who killed a lion with his bare hands, and he was taken down by a woman, right? You all know this guy? Samson, right? Like biblically, his fear of this woman conquered him in a way that no army ever could. I've seen single men and women controlled not by actual people, but by an ideal future spouse that has dictated the clothes they wear, it has prevented them from committing to a local church, and it has left them angry with God. I've seen kindergartners fight to give the best gift at a birthday party so their friends approve, even if it does cost $100. How many parents have you seen who don't struggle with the fear of man but the fear of children, right? They don't discipline their children because they want them to be their buddies or they want them to think well of them or they let their children even maybe choose their church. Isn't it bad if the child chooses the church? Isn't there something spiritually wrong there? I think so. I think the Bible says that. And some men and women will even sacrifice their families for success at work because they are controlled by what others think of their performance. Sometimes the fear of man is well rewarded by the world. Have you noticed that? You can turn the fear of man into a really good salary. And just maybe this morning, either your hatred for someone or your desire for someone controls you. But please don't miss this. The fear of man is even more dangerous than it is common because the Bible contrasts the fear of man with the fear of God. That's why you see the fear of man often hanging out with his two best buddies. Do you know these guys? Unbelief right, on one hand, and who's the other one? Disobedience. So anytime you see this fear of man in the Bible, be on the lookout for unbelief and disobedience because they're always together. How are you viewing God today? But in the same way, the fear of God or a, a submissive reverence to Him that leads to obedience always emanates from faith that leads to obedience. It always does. So the fear of man, it actually dwarfs God and makes him small before your eyes and in your soul. But the fear of God dwarfs man. If you do that, that will bring you confidence in this life. Confidence not in yourself, but in your great God. And he does this twice. You'll notice that this is what Ahaz needs as he struggles with fear of man. What he needs most is to hear God's Word. What you need to do is what Ahaz needs to do, which is to hear from God. And Ahaz hears from God twice in verses 3 to 9 and verses 10 to 25. So we'll look at the first one. 
Faith in God's Word combats the fear of man in verses 3 to 9. So look there with me in your copy of God's Word. And listen to what he says here to Ahaz. Beginning in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Now just think about this. Isaiah is going to meet King Ahaz with a word from the Lord, and he takes Shir Jashub, his son, with him. This kid doesn't ever actually speak. He just kind of rides along. And when he gets there, his very physical presence is kind of the message. And what he represents is basically that he is sort of this living, breathing, greeting card that says you will either find God's salvation or judgment. And he commands Ahaz to do four things. Isaiah says, do these four things. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And he's saying this about Israel and Syria who are threatening to destroy them. Now 2 Kings 16 tells us that King Ahaz's advisors in this moment had been telling him to move quickly to make an alliance with Assyria to save them. So he's saying, look, you're in danger. You need to sort of lock up with Assyria and they'll help you. They'll save us. We need, some, we need to make a wise political move to secure our salvation. Now, this isn't an Old Testament ancient version of let go and let God. That's not what he's saying. That's not good theology. What he's saying here is, I want you not to try to devise a plan to save yourself. I want you to watch how I am going to follow through with my word and save you. Here, God is asking for active obedience from Ahaz to trust God's promises more than he fears the taunts of men. Did you notice that God calls Israel and Syria two smoldering stumps of firebrands? It's because Assyria would soon stamp them out. Now presently they taunt Ahaz, the son of David, in verse 5, and they're threatening to replace him with the son of Tobiel. David has the promises of God. Tobiel doesn't. Tobiel has not been promised an eternal throne that will last forever. And he's sitting here reminding him, do not forget the promises of God and who you are. I am the God who in 2 Samuel 7 promised your great-great-grandfather David that I would produce a seed from him with an eternal throne will trust the promises of God. Will God follow through with His Word? And in verses 7 to 9, God doubles down. He says, catch this. This is what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God is trying to communicate Ahaz and his people that these people that are making these threats cannot follow through with what's going on. Their mouths are writing checks that their armies can't cash. 
There is no way that they are going to be able to come through on the threats because of who their God is. So he's drawing them towards faith in them. Their evil plans, like their threats, are empty. And not only that, God, did you notice he says that Syria will fall and Israel will no longer be a political people in 65 years? Now, if this is 734 B.C., 13 years later, Assyria would come in in 721 and take the people and exile them out of the land. They would devastate them. And then we're told that 65 years later, we would have a man, Esheradon, who would come and give their land over to foreigners who would move in so that Israel would no longer have land to return to. They would cease to be a political people. A fulfillment of what God has said because God always keeps His Word. Don't miss how God immediately turns and warns Ahaz in verse 9. He warns him. This is a warning for Ahaz. He says to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what looks like a political issue is actually an issue of faith. And brothers and sisters, please hear me. There are so many issues that you have that are relational, that are vocational, that are theological, that are actually more issues of faith than you realize. You need to make sure that you're constantly aware God and who He is and how you view Him affects the way that you view everything and the way that you live your life. And God's people have always been defined not by the amount of faith that they had, but the reality and object of their faith. No faith means that we are no people. And everything hinges on your faith as evidenced by your obedience. We, like Ahaz, I believe will be regularly confronted with the choice of whether or not to trust God to be our shield or to go God shopping looking for doctors who will not only heal but outwit God. We start looking for all of these other things outside of God, not trusting Him, not obeying Him and the relationships that we have and with our lives. We will not share the gospel because we are concerned about losing friends or family or even people that we don't miss that much. Like people that we don't even really care that much about, they control us in the way they think about us and we won't share Christ with them because we fear man. Many rejected Jesus Himself as He preached to them. And they even believed, we're told, in the book of Matthew chapter 10. And yet they would not put their faith in Him. Why? Because they were scared about what others might think. Yeah, peer pressure existed even in the Bible. Peer pressure kept people from Jesus. And that's why in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus warns those same people who were allowing peer pressure to keep them from Christ, saying, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I believe that Proverbs 29, 21 could be speaking of Ahaz here. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This morning, is there some way that you are fearing man and you are laying a snare for yourself and you don't even know it? Are you expecting things from people, needing things from people, hoping things from people that really ultimately you should be trusting God for and God alone? As a church, as a body, we ought to notice that here, when he says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not stand firm, or you will not be firm at all, is actually in the plural. He's speaking to a community of faith. He's speaking to the people of God. In other words, faith has been, is, and always will be a community project. 
We are called to have individual faith, but God also calls us to be a community of faith to help one another believe to the end. So 1 Timothy 3, Paul calls the local church the pillar and buttress of truth. That's God's Word that we put our trust in. We are a community of faith gathered around God's Word, trusting God. Why are we a pillar and buttress of truth? Well, pillars hold things up and buttresses hold things out. And so we need one another to be able to do that, to hold out lies and to hold forth truth and to hold up truth to the glory of God. We do that together in a way that we as individuals cannot do it to the glory of God. Don't miss this. You can't bear that burden alone. You need other brothers and sisters who are willing to come alongside you and point you towards God and towards salvation that is only to be found in Jesus Christ. God becomes bigger in community and man becomes smaller. You need elders to teach and care for you. We need a body that exercises gifts and sacrificial love with one another. And all of this works to humble man and glorify God. That's what the fear of God calls us to. The fear of God drives us to sacrificial love for others. The fear of God drives us to love God and others more, not less. Fear of man leads to sacrificing others, even their children. But the fear of God leads to sacrificial love and eternal life. We see that in our third point. Notice that testing God by fearing man most ends in death, exile, and worse. Testing God by fearing men most leads to Death, it leads to exile and worse in verses 10 to 18. Look again with me in your copy of God's Word in, in Isaiah chapter 7 at what Isaiah says. You'll notice, I think Ahaz knows that he's in trouble here as God comes to approach him again because he knows that the first time God approached him, it doesn't seem like it took. And so this probably isn't good when God has to come back and speak to you again when you've disobeyed. And so here in verses 10 to 18, Here's what he says. We'll start off by just reading the first few verses. He says, beginning in 7, verse 10, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now here we see Ahaz test God. What is being described is a really unique situation between God and Ahaz, the king of Judah, who is on the brink of destruction. And here what we find is, is that God offers Ahaz the unparalleled, amazing opportunity to ask him for a sign, anything from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. This is an incredible ask of the Lord, an offer that He would give him a sign. Now think about this. Sheol is a word that we find used multiple times in the book of Isaiah. It always means a place that is deep, but it also means always, and I've read it in Isaiah, the place of death. He's saying that I will give you anything from the depths of Sheol where the dead are to the heights of heaven. It almost seems as though he's saying one of those children that you sacrifice to your gods, I will bring them back to you as a picture of the fact that they are a God of death, but I am more powerful as the God of life. I will bring life back to you. Maybe, I might be missing that. But here we find that he has offered an incredible offer to Ahaz. Ahaz, maybe as you read this, he sounds pretty spiritual, 
for not asking for a fleece sign like Gideon did twice and just taking God at His word. But verse 12 tips us off that Ahaz actually is demonstrating a false kind of piety when he says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Interesting word, Ahaz. The test is interesting given this context. A word that's used other word places in the Old Testament, like Exodus 17. You'll remember there that the people of God are in the desert, and they're thirsty to the point of death. And they're ready to kill Moses when all of a sudden they say, if you don't give us water, then we're going to kill you and we're going to run back to Egypt. And it's at that point that they begin to ask this question, is the Lord amongst us or not? You catch that? He just rescued them out of Egypt. They didn't lift a sword. They left the most powerful nation in the world at that time, were rescued by God, for God, and they are sitting there thirsty, wondering if God is really going to show up and is for them. They question God. And God had Moses strike the rock of the mountain producing water and called that place Massah or Meribah, meaning the place where God's people tested God. Here's what's interesting. Psalm 81 speaks of that event and says God tested his people at Massah. And chapter 95 of Psalms said God's people tested him. So who was doing the testing? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? No! It's clear. What he's saying is, they thought they were testing me, but I was testing them. I was showing that their faith, it was not solid, it was not firm. It was a falling kind of faith. So both here and in Exodus 17, God is showing that both are true. I tested Ahaz, offering him a sign to see if he would obey God's word and ask for one. And Ahaz tested God by refusing to trust and obey him when the water dried up and he feared death. Catch this. Ahaz failed and God always passes the test. God is always true to his word. He never wavers. But here Ahaz fails to trust God. But notice this. In verse 14, we see that God gives Ahaz a sign. You don't want to ask for a sign? Well, let me give you a sign. And notice the sign that he gives in verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that God with us here is actually bad, right? It's bad because Ahaz has wearied God with his fear of man, unbelief, and disobedience. So some, as they look at this text, they debate the use of the word virgin here, because the Hebrew word Alma actually means a young woman who is normally, but not always, a virgin. I say if he really wanted to speak of a virgin, he would have used betula, which is a word that always means virgin, and that would have gotten the point across clearly. I think actually this word is perfect because I think that it communicates this word that's used here, both a near and a far fulfillment with a word that fits both. See, I believe that, that God actually fulfills this promise of giving this special child Emmanuel both in a near and a far fulfillment. There's a double fulfillment here. So, Here's how I see this. First, in verses 15 to 25, they tip us off that this son who would be given would arrive in Isaiah's lifetime. Look at verses 15 to 17 at what he says. He says, He, the son, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days 
as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now just think about this. By the time this kid is 13, likely an age when he would have been expected to understand good and evil, they are going to find that the men Ahaz fear so much, those monsters that seem so great, Pekah and Rezin, will be gone and replaced by, catch this, an even greater terror, Assyria. So you think you're scared now? There are worse things to be scared of that aren't even on your radar. Thanks, God. Now, you can't miss the irony. The human protector that he sought becomes his executioner. Do you see it? He sought life in another than God, and it led to his death. In other words, if Ahaz had trusted God, he would have received a sign of salvation. But because he feared man more than God, his heart was hardened, and he received a sign of judgment instead. Now, verses 18 to 25 tell us a little more about that day that this child will come. You'll notice as you look through, if you scan through, that he gives four in that day statements. Here's what that day is going to be like, all right? And they all describe that judgment. Now, you'll notice that Egypt was known for flies and Assyria for bees. And in verses 18 to 19, in that day, they will swarm the land. Then verse 20 moves from land to people, with God hiring a barber in that day who will shave the head of the hair, the foot, and the beard, all with the same razor. I think that's okay. Still trying to process the foot hair. But you've heard someone say before, I'm sure, well, here the idea is that every, head, every hair from head to toe will be absolutely dealt with by the justice of God. There will be no escape. God says uh, not only that, that He will eat curds and honey, which point to utter poverty. That's a diet of poverty in verses 21 to 22. And finally, in verses 23 to 25, God's rich vineyard in Judah will be overcome in that day. Do you remember briars and thorns throughout? Sign of God's curse going back to Genesis 3. Well, here they come again, pointing to God's curse on the land for Ahaz and his people's sins against God, not trusting him for salvation from their enemies. Who is this son? Well, I believe the near fulfillment is actually... Isaiah's son, who's born in Isaiah 8, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, you'll notice if you look in chapter 8, he is born. He's born to Isaiah, I think a fulfillment of the sign. And his name means swift to the spoil. Swift to the spoil. In other words, this son is promising that God is going to be with us. He's promising that presence of God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. And yet here it is not going to be good for them because God with us means that God will draw near to Judah for fearing more men more than God, and He will draw near to them in justice and righteousness until only a stump would remain. That's what the sun signals. God with us carries a, a different ring here, doesn't it, than what we're going to sing about in a few months. See, here, Emmanuel, God with us, is actually quite different than what we typically sing, because here you'll notice that God will draw near to Judah in judgment. So this Emmanuel was a terrifying little bundle of fear that Ahaz had. But he also pointed, I believe, not just to that child, but he also pointed to another child, the far fulfillment, who would be born over 700 years later, to a woman who was not only young and unmarried, but also an actual virgin, whom the Holy Spirit would overshadow, creating the God-man named Jesus, meaning Savior. And that Jesus would be the Savior of the people of God. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He was a good king, not like Ahaz. 
And He was not controlled by the fear of man, but by God's Spirit. And He died on the cross to save us from the greater than mortal enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And this Emmanuel, He was raised from Sheol, literally, as a sign that God had reconciled man to God and draw them near to Him. In fact, Matthew 1.21 speaks of Him, saying that Jesus had another name too, which means Yahweh saves. Matthew says, all this took place with Jesus to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you see what this means? Every one of us has an Ahaz-like moment that has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. He is a fresh word that has come to us from God. God's ultimate expression of Himself to you and me. And we, like Ahaz, have this moment where when we come before Jesus, we have to decide whether or not we're going to believe God, trust Him, take Him at His Word, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior, or we're going to walk away and have our hearts hardened. That's what we find when we come to Christ. He is the better Word that has come from God than what Ahaz had. We have Christ Himself, Emmanuel. Emmanuel who, right now, if you turn and repent and believe in Him, it actually means... God saves rather than God judges. What a glorious promise that we have in Christ. Don't leave here today, friend, if you're a non-Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. A day of judgment's coming, and the only hope that you have is to be found in Christ. I would love to talk to you about this after the service. We have many people who would love to talk to you about Jesus. There's nothing that you need more than Christ. I'm telling you, today you are controlled by something. Someone controls you, and there's no one who is good and loving and trustworthy like Christ to trust with your life. Only He can promise you life after death. Here what we find is, is that if we reject Him, we will face the judgment of God for our sins. But how we respond to Christ, it means everything. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're wondering, well, what does it look like to put my faith in Jesus? Real faith, true faith, faith that will stand firm and that won't fall like what Ahaz was guilty of is a faith that actually is focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You believe that you are a sinner, Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners, that you have a problem with God that only Jesus has been able to fix through His death and through His life, and that He was raised from the dead to tell you, to promise you, to assure you as a sign of the reality that you can have good relationship with God, that you can be reconciled with Him. But not only that, not only do you need to believe that gospel truth about Jesus, Second, you also need to believe that it's not just generally true that Jesus did that in history, but that He did it for you. That you specifically are a sinner. That Christ died for you on the cross, and that by putting your faith in Him, you will be forgiven of your sins. That you will become no longer an enemy of God, but a child of God. A God who is no longer against you, but is for you, such that nothing can separate you from love, from His love. And there's a third thing. A third thing I think is really important that a lot of people miss is this, that true faith includes this thing, recumbency. It's what Puritans called recumbency. Now, I know that's a big word, a weird word, but I bet you're more familiar with it than you know. If you've watched a football game in a lazy boy chair, then you know what I'm talking about. A recumbent chair is just one that you sort of ease back into, you lean into. Well, true faith is a faith that leans into God with our lives, with the decisions that we make, with the choices that we make, with how we live, with the ways that we live in community with others. Those are all shaped by the fact that we are trusting God in obedience, that He is as good as He says He is, and that obedience and holiness are good for us because He says so. So if you are, are truly putting your faith in God, it means that you believe that what He has said is true for you, and you're willing to put your life on it. 
That's what Christ is calling you today. If you haven't done that, don't leave without talking to me about how to make that a reality for you. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have revealed yourself as a God who is just, who intends to set all that is wrong right, that you are trustworthy, that we can trust that you are able to do and that you are willing to do and that you will do what you have said you will do. God, that you are good, that your plans for us are for our good and not our harm, that you have better in store for us than what we can imagine. Father, we praise you that you are that God, and we pray this morning that you would help our hearts to fear you more in the sense that we would have a submissive reverence to you in our lives, that Jesus would reign as king over all of the decisions that we make. Father, that we would honor and glorify you in all of these things. Father, we pray that we would not be like Ahaz, who had a false kind of piety. We pray that we would be confessing sinners who trust you and you alone to be saved. We trust you and you alone to reconcile us to yourself, that we trust you and you alone for our ultimate salvation. God, we pray that that would be the kind of people that we are. Do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.